You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. A quick heads up for today's episode. We are going to be talking about safety of children, and that does require talking about bad things having happened to children. Just FYI. You're walking along a path in the woods. Maybe you're on a hike. Maybe you're headed to a picnic. The sun is shining and the warm breeze ruffles your hair. Suddenly, you're halted in your step. Your back foot is sinking into the ground. You try to plant your other foot firmly to lever yourself out. Now both feet are sinking. It's quicksand. You'll be swallowed alive. You struggle to get free, but that only makes it worse. You'll be sucked under in a matter of seconds. Except... My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Let me open today's topic, that being things 80s kids were taught to be afraid of that aren't actually things we need to be afraid of. First, this topic was voted on by supporters at Patreon.com slash YourBrainOnFacts. And secondly, that the research led me in directions I wasn't expecting, so the final product is as much a surprise to me as it will be to the listener. What do you do when your clothes catch fire? And it always seemed like when, not if. The same thing you never see anyone on TV or YouTube do when they find themselves doing surprise Johnny Storm cosplay. Stop, drop, and roll. Burning clothes burn you. Stop, drop, and roll, because people burn, too. A message from the New Jersey Department of Community Affairs Bureau of Fire Safety. If you tried to tell me that a single year of elementary school passed in the 80s without the stop, drop, and roll lesson, I'd call you a liar. You were going to catch fire. Eventually. That much was clear. But as someone who heats her home with wood and has been through two house fires and a lightning strike... Let me attest that catching fire is not the inevitability we were led to believe. But the lesson wasn't wrong as much as it was maybe a little late. Children's clothes and blankets catching on fire had been a common tragedy in households for centuries. Back in olden times when your heat and light and not a small amount of entertainment all came from some manner of flame. My mother's family actually lost a little one that way. Time and human advancement helped to drive down the frequency of juvenile incendiary casualties. 
candles gave way to gaslight, which was replaced with light bulbs, and fireplaces were replaced with heat pumps. The ignition sources were fewer and farther between, but technology is nothing if not a double-edged sword. Enter at the same time synthetic fabrics, which rather than burning like cotton and wool, would burn, drip, spread, and adhere to skin. The truth of the matter is, 80s babies were among the first kids to have a substantially lower risk of clothing fire incidents, thanks to 1975's formation of the Consumer Product Safety Act. Well, actually, it owes a lot to 1953's Flammable Fabrics Act. But then I guess we should go back to 1945 and Gene Autry. For those without a standing dinner reservation at Golden Corral for 4.30, Gene Autry was a cowboy crooner who made his mark in radio, TV, and films for over three decades. I'm back in the saddle again Out where a friend is a friend Being a celebrity, he had merch, including branded cowboy costumes for all the little ones at Halloween. Thousands and thousands of these were sold across the country. Then, the tragedies began. Between late 1942 and continuing until at least 1954, an unknown number of children were badly, badly burned when the fuzzy fabric of the chaps came in contact with an ignition source, and the entire garment would catch. It was three long years from the first incidents before people began to understand that something specific was wrong here, that the material used for the chaps was the cause of these tragedies. It was so flammable, the entire outfit would go up in a matter of seconds before the child or parents even knew what was happening to react. This was the 1940s, a time well before the constant global connectivity that we've been used to for 20-plus years. So news of these incidents remained isolated and the picture incomplete. The costumes kept being sold and children kept being injured or dying. Ultimately, at least 100 families brought suit against the various companies involved in the manufacture and distribution of the costume and most of those would receive some form of financial settlement. Nine years after the combustible costumes had hit shelves, Congress passed the first federal law intended to protect consumers against, quote, flammable fabrics, which regulated, among other things, which fabric can be used for clothing. Even cloth that is not specifically treated to be fire retardant is not allowed to be as flammable as those chaps were. In fact, children's pajamas in particular are required by law to be made of cloth that is fire retardant. Almost 20 years later, Congress passed the 1972 Consumer Product Safety Act, which established the Consumer Product Safety Commission. In 1975, the CPSC added additional requirements for children's sleepwear. If you're wondering why all the added focus on pajamas, there are a few reasons. For one thing, PJs tend to be looser than day wear. But interestingly, and this is one of those things that you wouldn't have thought of, but it makes obvious sense once you hear it, children are most likely to be playing with matches or lighters when they sneak out of bed at night or when they wake up before their parents in the morning and have to make their own fun. Just ask my ex-husband's family. 
and the people in the adjoining apartment. And that actually took place in the late 70s, now that I think about it. It's a good thing he was wearing well-regulated pajamas. As each year passed, pediatric burns declined, both in frequency and severity. By 1977, according to a report from the Schreiner Burn Institute, in the preceding year, only one child had to be hospitalized after sleepwear ignition. The rest were able to be treated in the ER and discharged. The study did point out, though, that there are other factors in play than just fire-retardant fabric, such as the shift away from flowing nightshirts toward pajama pants sets. And at the same time as this, a better understanding of the dangers of smoking began to lead to its decline, which meant fewer dropped cherries and fewer matches laying around. But at the same time that we spared kids secondhand smoke lung cancer, we had to face the possibility that the flame-retardant chemicals might actually cause cancer. This is why we can't have nice things. The current regulations require that pajamas be either flame-resistant or tight-fitting. By the by, flame-resistant and fire-retardant aren't exactly synonymous. Well, the, the second words aren't. Flame and fire are, of course, synonyms. Resistant is defined as material that is inherently resistant to catching fire and does not melt or drip when exposed to high temperatures. Looking at you, polyester. Retardant is defined as a material that has been chemically treated to self-extinguish. The 70s saw children in less danger of catching fire and armed them with a way to handle it. The very first stop, drop, and roll PSA to air on television starred Dick Van Dyke. Was he appealing to the target demographic in the late 70s? Hi there. I'm rolling because I want to show you what to do if your clothes ever catch on fire. Because... The fire won't just burn your clothes, it'll burn you. Other consumer trends across my generation also made you less likely to set ablaze your Benetton, to be scorched by your Sasson, like electric stoves instead of gas, and several home-building booms with fireplaces being a perk that you would use twice a year, rather than being a standard feature. So, 80s babies were the safest from clothing fires that kids had been in over 40 years. We arguably didn't need stop, drop, and roll. And safety experts these days say that it needs improving. In teaching stop, drop, and roll as a reaction to fire over and over and over again, some kids come away with the impression that stop, drop, and roll is the correct reaction to any fire. In a house fire, and trust me to know, the stop and drop might be to your benefit but the rolling? Over at the National Fire Safety Council, they've fleshed it out a bit to be stop, drop, cover your face, and roll. And fire marshals around the country agree. We interrupt our program for a breaking announcement. For the next 75 hours, that is three days and three hours from the drop of this episode, a limited number of personalized, signed copies of the Your Brain on Facts book will be available. If you're shopping for a fellow brainiac or for someone you know who loves learning, you can get them a copy of the Your Brain on Facts book addressed to them with a message of your choice or a random fact. 
and I'll gift wrap it and mail it straight to them. No fuss, no muss. Go to yourbrainonfacts.com slash signed book. Don't delay because the sale lasts until 9 a.m. Eastern on Friday morning or until I run out of copies on hand. Yourbrainonfacts.com slash signed book. Of course, if the recipient already has the book, or if you want to make a whole gift set out of it, you can always visit our Teespring store, bit.ly slash merch. You can get the classic brain logo, the hello my name is and this is your brain on facts, or one of the funny quotes like, it is of course better to know many useless things than to know nothing, on a t-shirt, phone case, a mug, you name it bit.ly slash merch. The other catchy slogan that accompanied 80s childhood development was just say no. To illegal drugs, that is, in case you've been in a coma since the Carter administration. The former flower children had graduated from weed and woodstock to cocaine and condos, But the 80s were the decade of both the War on Drugs and the D.A.R.E. program. The War on Drugs brought us a wave of anti-drug PSAs, liberally sprinkled between the ads for Chicken McNuggets, which debuted in 1981, and He-Man Toys, which launched in 1983. And good lord were there a lot of anti-drug PSAs in the 80s. Look, Daddy, where did you get it? Answer me. Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. Parents who use drugs have children who use drugs. So don't blow it. Don't do drugs. If you're doing it, stop it. Get some help. I used to do drugs. And one morning I woke up, I looked in the mirror, and I said, you look frightening. I got sick of it, so I quit. And now, life's the beach. What's bugging you, Murphy? Drugs. Drugs bug me. I get angry just thinking about it makes me mad. Little kids doing drugs, that stuff hurts. It stops you from living up to your potential. It holds you back. I just want to shake some sense into you kids that are using drugs and think about using it. So remember, don't or else, okay? While we're talking about PSAs or public service announcements, Why are they? Why was our late-stage capitalism constantly interrupted by these do-gooder spots? The nonprofit organization Keep America Beautiful partnered with the Ad Council to produce an anti-pollution TV spot, the famous Crying Indian spot. If you remember episode 100 of this show, you'll remember that that native man, Iron Eyes Cody, was actually a Sicilian man born Oscar de Corti. He stuck to that fake story of his life even after a reporter talked to his family. In his defense, he did push directors to portray native characters in a better light. 50-50. The spot did the equivalent of going viral, and it got lots of press coverage. With all that attention, the TV PSA was officially a thing even though they'd actually existed for years already. Contrary to popular belief, there is no minimum number of PSAs, or hours in the day, that networks are required to run them. The closest you get to an actual requirement 
is the Radio Act of 1927, which calls for broadcasters to, quote, serve the public interest, convenience, and necessity. The impetus for PSAs could have come from nonprofits and community groups, or as commercials in disguise. It seemed like you couldn't go through an afternoon's cartoon watching without seeing a character or actor from your favorite show in an anti-drug PSA. From the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles... He's right! Drug dealers are dorks! Don't even talk to him! Cowabunga! And Pee Wee Herman, staring down camera with a crack rock in his hand. This is crack. Rock cocaine. It isn't glamorous or cool or kid stuff. I never got how that one was supposed to be effective. So TV had been weaponized for the war on drugs. Since the 1980s, the U.S. government has spent more than a billion with a B dollars on TV anti-drug PSAs. In 1987, the Partnership for a Drug-Free America created the mother of all anti-drug PSAs. Okay, last time. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? It became a cultural touchstone that's still being parodied 33 years later. I mean, you're listening to a podcast called Your Brain on Facts. Not a coincidence. Ooh, bonus fact. The director of that PSA also directed three Michael Jackson videos, including Dirty Diana and Space Jam. Now, there's no good evidence to show that these ads work, though, which is a problem considering that PSAs peaked at about a million dollars spent in airtime per day. Studies show that the ads might give teens a dimmer view of drugs, but it wouldn't result in any changes in their behavior. In fact, some ads had a forbidden fruit effect. They made teens even more curious about drugs, just because the grown-ups were telling them not to. A reflex that will pop up again shortly. The money spent in the 80s on those ads was a total waste, said Keith Humphreys, a professor at Stanford University and former presidential drug policy advisor. You shouldn't use drugs because authority figures have told you not to. Now, be a good boy or good girl and do exactly as you're told. No adolescent wants to hear that. I don't want to hear it, and I'm in my early 40s. Meh, never could tell me anything. By the 1990s and into the early 2000s, anti-drug messaging got scarier and more graphic, like an anti-meth PSA showing a teenager punching their mom. The Hell House-style through-line was, there are dire consequences that await you if you do drugs. Do scare tactics in PSAs really work? Long answer, yes with an if, short answer, no with a but. In 2016, the federal government evaluated different research into anti-alcohol, tobacco, and drug messaging. They found that, quote, Though used widely since, studies prove scare tactics ineffective in substance abuse prevention. What they found was that the scare tactics only worked on the kids who were the least likely to use as it was. The rest? Just tune it out. A more promising approach, according to a study from Ohio State University, 
is to show drug-free teens as independent and thinking for themselves. But no matter what tact they followed, these PSAs made one thing clear in the 1980s. Someone was going to offer us drugs. It was a given. And they were going to offer them to you. Not offer to sell them to you, just offer them, like a stick of gum from a fresh pack. Admittedly, I grew up in a really small town and was something of a homebody, but never once, in all my years of hoping, has anyone offered me drugs. I didn't really know what the drugs were, like which one was which and which slang term referred to which substance. Thankfully, there was a do-gooder organization out there ready to teach me. Well, to teach my younger sisters anyway, because my elementary school didn't have the D.A.R.E. program. The Drug Awareness Resistance Education Program was founded in 1983 as a partnership between the Los Angeles school system and the LAPD. The core concept was that officers would go into schools to talk to kids so that they would have the self-esteem and knowledge they needed to resist the temptation to use drugs. It was very popular with lawmakers, who realized that by supporting D.A.R.E., they could paint themselves as pro-cop and pro-kids, the sort of things you wanted to cloak yourself in during the Reagan administration. Reagan even proclaimed the first National D.A.R.E. Day in 1988. At its height, the program had an eight-figure budget from federal, state, and private funding, and was being used in up to 75% of the nation's school districts, at least according to D.A.R.E. Then public health researchers started looking for, what's that thing called? Evidence that the program was actually reducing teen drug use. The effectiveness of D.A.R.E. in altering students' drug use behavior has yet to be established, concluded a University of Illinois at Chicago study in 1991. And they were far from the only ones to come to that conclusion. In 1994, the Research Triangle Institute, with funding from the Justice Department, conducted a meta-analysis of all the existing research on D.A.R.E., meaning they collated and studied existing studies. Its conclusion? D.A.R.E. had little to no impact on the rates of teen drug use. D.A.R.E.'s limited influence on adolescent drug use behavior contrasts with the program's popularity and prevalence. An important implication is that D.A.R.E. could be taking the place of other, more beneficial drug use curricula that adolescents could be receiving. This took the Justice Department by surprise, and according to contemporary accounts, they refused to publish the findings. Your tax dollars at work. But the studies just kept coming. One even suggested that D.A.R.E. students were more likely than their peers to experiment with drugs and alcohol because of what those authors called the boomerang effect. Quote, an attempt to persuade resulting in the adoption of an opposing position instead. Kids doing the thing because parents kept telling them not to do the thing. The government took another look at D.A.R.E., this time by the General Accounting Office in 2003, which found... Quote, no significant differences in illicit drug use between students who receive D.A.R.E. and those who don't. That report was the beginning of the end of the original D.A.R.E. program. 
funding dwindled from over $10 million in 2002 to just over $3 million in 2012. Dare tried to reinvent themselves with the cringeworthily named Keeping It Real program. Ugh, it's like that meme of Steve Buscemi with the skateboard. How do you do, fellow kids? There is some evidence to suggest that their new approach might work. It was commended in the recent Surgeon General's report on drug addiction for demonstrating efficacy in preventing drug use. The secret? It's not an anti-drug program, a co-developer of the new curriculum told Scientific America in 2014. It's about things like being honest and safe and responsible. So D.A.R.E. isn't an anti-drug program anymore? Well, then what is it? Well, since 2009, its mission is to teach students good decision-making skills to help them lead safe and healthy lives. That's nice. Vague, but nice. But is it working? Well, it's hard to say because D.A.R.E. itself doesn't seem to be checking for efficacy. According to one study of the revamped program, Without empirical evidence, we cannot conclusively confirm or deny the effectiveness of the program. Well, at least they still have that cool lion mascot. So maybe a few kids will learn to say no to drugs, and yes, to furries. It's been a little bit since we got a new review for the Your Brain on Facts book, but that's okay. I still have a stack to go through. Like this one, five stars, the more you know. For any lover of facts, this book is a must-have, truly engaging from beginning to end. This is the book for your coffee table, bedside table, or bathroom. Interesting facts in an organized fashion that leaves you wanting more. And the companion podcast is the best. Do yourself a favor and add this book to your shelf. Thank you, Susan. Am I saying that right, Susan? I'm joking around because we actually know each other uh, in real life. As it were, she has the most darling and clever little boy named Court. Well, I can hardly call him a little boy anymore. I haven't seen him, though, in person since my wedding when he asked if he could keep one of the uh, blood-soaked rubber knives. Hey, man, we party. What can I say? But thank you so much, Susan, and hi, Court. Love you guys. Speaking of the book, I did have an email from a listener this past week who wants to get the book but can't because she's blind and somehow a book based on a podcast doesn't have an audiobook. Trust me, I have been thinking about that since before the book came out, but I am pleased to announce that I am presently recording the Your Brain on Facts audiobook. Huzzah and hurrah! And as soon as I have any idea of when it's expected to publish, you know I'll let you know. There's a neat coincidence in the Apple Podcast reviews for the show. The last three are from Canadian listeners, like Mage Matthew, who said, Really enjoying this podcast. Well-voiced and interesting facts. Or Dave Emu Guy, I have questions, who said, Ignored all other podcasts until I caught up. Your Brain on Facts is the third podcast I've completely binged before returning to my regular rotation. For me, Moxie is in the company of Alan Cross's History of New Music and Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. She's also the first non-Canadian podcast that's grabbed my attention enough to listen to exclusively until I got to the current offering. Always interesting subjects and delivered with a voice as enjoyable to listen to as Neil Gaiman. 
I highly recommend her work and love that she gives us this gift. Well, Dave, emu guy, can I call you emu? It is my pleasure. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. In 1981, Adam Walsh, age six, was abducted from a Florida mall. His head was found in a drainage ditch two weeks later. In 1982, 12-year-old Johnny Gosh never returned home from his daily paper route. In 1983, 6-year-old Ludovic Javier was lured away from his brothers and never seen again. 6-year-old Eaton Pats disappeared while walking two blocks to the bus stop, with both his mother and a neighbor watching. His was one of the first faces to appear on a milk carton and the first one to do so nationwide, turning what had once been a local effort into a national movement. G.I. Joe and McGruff the Crime Dog issued dire warnings. TV movies and miniseries like I Know My First Name Is Steven, which this reporter clearly remembers, drew huge ratings. Sitcoms and kids' shows had very special episodes, several in the case of different strokes. Parents dragged their children to police stations to get special ID cards. The watchword of the day? Stranger danger. The phrase stranger danger has been in the common parlance since the 1960s. It's got a beat and you can dance to it. But the concept of stranger danger didn't become the cultural touchstone that it is until the 1980s. In 1986, the classroom-distributed periodical Weekly Reader found in a poll of kids grades 2 through 6 that stranger danger and the threat of nuclear war were their biggest concerns. It was that level of threat to us. We didn't know who was going to get us first, the Russians or some shadowy stranger. When Ronald Reagan became president in 1980, he donned the boxing gloves of protecting the family and being tough on crime. The cry to save the children arises from where those overlap. Reagan even designated May 25th, the day of Eaton Pats' kidnapping, National Missing Children's Day. 
John Walsh, the father of Adam Walsh, who hosted America's Most Wanted for 24 years, helped establish the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. In 1984, Walsh told a Senate committee that 205 children in the U.S. were reported missing every hour. For those of you who are poor at math like myself, that is 1.79 million children a year. People were shocked. Too shocked, I suppose, to realize that is 3% of children disappearing. You'd notice that on your own. Imagine what that would look like in an average elementary school if one out of every 35 children disappeared. But the panic had set in. The 1980s was also the decade that gave us CNN, the world's first 24-hour news network, a format that requires talking about the same story a lot to fill those 24 hours. The camera's on, and you gotta say something, so you keep reporting on the story, even when there are no new developments. You bring experts on, as long as they tow the narrative line, and you just keep beating people over the head with the fear that it could happen to them. All those milk cartons, lead stories on the news, and later social media shares make it seem like children vanish left, right, and center. Don't get me started about the amount of media coverage given to the white children who go missing, especially the blonde ones, and I'm saying this as a natural blonde, and how much coverage is denied to children of color. I would be here all day. It might seem like children were being snatched off every street corner. Who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Or as Stephen Dubner, co-author of Freakonomics, said, Most people are pretty terrible at risk assessment. They tend to overstate the risk of dramatic and unlikely events at the expense of more common and boring, if equally devastating, events. So let's get down to brass tacks. According to the FBI, in 2019, 609,275 records for missing persons of all ages were entered into NCIC. That is a big number for sure. But let's break it down into more manageable bites. First, each record entered is for a disappearance, not for an individual. If a person disappeared multiple times in a calendar year, as can happen with incorrigible teens, adults with mental health issues, children with severe autism, and other situations. So the number is already bigger than it should be. Of the 609,000 cases, 607,000 were resolved in some manner, such as the person returning on their own, being found by law enforcement, or when a record was found to be redundant or erroneous. Of the valid 2,000-some-odd left, about a third of these are children. Now compare that to the 74 million children in the country. The whittling down isn't done yet, though. I saved the best, if not the most important, for last. It's probably the first thing that leapt to mind, and if it's not, it should have been. According to the Justice Department, 99% of abducted children are taken by someone they know often a relative, and most commonly, a father who does not have legal custody of the child. Fewer than 350 people under the age of 21 were abducted by abject strangers. And that's not for 2019. 
That's for the 20-teens. Only 10% of perpetrators of violent crimes against children are unknown to their victims. For sex offenses, the crimes are even less likely to involve strangers. So stranger danger isn't the real cause of many child disappearances, and it can be causing more harm than it sought to prevent. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children advises against using the phrase stranger danger when teaching your kids safety. It's so easy. It rhymes, says Callahan Wash, a child advocate at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. It's just this one phrase, a blanket statement, but it really doesn't fit all scenarios. And that's why we want to rethink stranger danger. The center has three good reasons why teaching kids stranger danger is counterproductive. One, it's inaccurate. Your child's more likely to be harmed by someone they know, so they'll be watching for danger in the wrong place. It warps their ability to evaluate the risks in their environment properly. Two, children might not interpret stranger the way you want them to. For little minds, the world is very black and white, good guys and bad guys, with no gradient. Anyone you don't know is a stranger, and all strangers are dangerous. Three, if they're afraid of all strangers, they won't be able to talk to people they don't know when they need to, according to Walsh. Oftentimes, kids are in a situation where they will need to reach out to a stranger for help, whether they're just being lost or if there's an actual abduction. Like when 11-year-old Boy Scout Brennan Hawkins got lost in the mountains of Utah. Volunteers searched for him for four days. All the while, Brennan was actively avoiding his rescuers. He could see the volunteers, but he thought they, quote, would steal him. Thankfully, he eventually let himself be found. It's better to teach children what behavior they should be wary of, like being asked for directions. Who asks a little kid for directions? They barely remember their left from their right. Or trying to use enticing lures like candy or puppies. You can also empower your children to be able to help themselves out of difficult situations by telling them to look for someone in a uniform, or failing that, a woman, who is statistically less likely to be a threat and intuitively more likely to help them. As someone who grew up in the 1980s, as a surprisingly shy child who would freak the f- out and immediately fall apart into tears if she looked up and found herself suddenly alone, I endorse that line of thinking. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Quicksand, like catching on fire and being offered free drugs, seemed like an omnipresent threat to kids in the 1980s. Don't misconstrue. Quicksand is real and it can be dangerous but it requires special conditions to exist. You need to have fine particles of soil, like sand, in a colloid of water. Sudden impact or agitation causes it to liquefy. It's the exact opposite of non-Newtonian fluids like cornstarch and water becoming solid when something contacts them. But you're unlikely to drown in it because the density of the quicksand would need to be less than the density of you, and it's not. So, if you find yourself sinking into quicksand, try to maneuver yourself into a back float until you're on top again. And then, maybe, post a warning sign. 
Big thanks to the guest voices for this episode. Chris from Play Comics, Jake from Hearts Against Balance, and Connor and Luke from No Highway Option. You can find links to their shows in the show notes. Remember, you can always find the script and the source links on yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And stay safe. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.